0: Hi, I'm George Tekpichoff. This is Eastern Target podcast number 180. Nice round number. And uh, in a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Steve, the big cat, the big cat Anderson, as well as Jack Williams, Team USA. But right now, our special guest is World Archery's Secretary General Tom Dealin. Tom, thanks for joining us from uh, your home in Lausanne.
1: Pleasure as always, George.
0: <clears throat> well, Tom, there's a, a lot to talk about. And uh, the biggest news of the week, of course, is that we're about to launch another World Cup season just a couple of days from now in Antalya, Turkey. And it is exciting to see that we are finally back in something maybe resembling something more normal. Is that uh, a fair way to put it?
1: Well, I would definitely call it the new <laughs> new normal. <coughs> I'm sorry. Uh, we uh, we we're definitely, I would say, back to a a more regular schedule of events, and uh, we have uh, back normal numbers, I would say. We're expecting uh, 47 countries, uh, around 340 archers in total. So it's it's back to, I would say, more regular uh, situation. Now, of course, we have a very special situation with uh, the Ukrainian uh, team being there, uh, kind of in a refugee situation we have of course uh, both russia and belarusia suspended and cannot participate at this time the ukrainian team is uh,
0: training at the biter center in Dauchingen, germany and tom um, the, you know with their sort of refugee situation i understand there is a fundraiser to try to support the entire team both the compound and the recurves uh, or at least the, the federation itself so that they can continue to compete this season isn't that so
1: absolutely and it's uh, i'm very grateful to to andreas lawrence uh, for coordinating this and uh, this re-initiative with the Ukrainian Federation. So it's uh, uh, we, we ask everyone who can uh, to to support it. And uh, uh, we are also supporting the team as much as we can. We, we have arranged that they have tickets to go to Antalya. Turkish uh, Federation is uh, uh, allowing them to participate without uh, entry fee. We also have the Turkish Olympic Committee Uh, paying for the accommodation and then we have area providing uniforms and and Turkish Airlines is helping with the tickets as well. So we have really a a good solidarity action from from the archery family and the Olympic family in general.
0: Yeah, it's nice to see. Um, That kind of leads us to our discussion of the newly announced archery qualification procedure for the Paris Olympic Games as we've discussed in the past. We've lost a year of preparation time so everybody is in high gear now. You have more than 160 WA countries hoping to win slots for the paris olympic games in 2024 and there's good news right because the qualification round which is uh what used to be called the ranking round will be before the opening ceremony you can have olympic records in that round mixed teams will be back standard team round will be back as well we're going to have at least 84 recurve men and uh, sorry 64 recurve men and 64 recurve women to compete in paris but here's the reason i bring this up tom there is the possibility that's under discussion right now of more slots for refugee archers. Now, normally, um, that's included in the 128 compilation, but we could be looking at extra slots potentially. I understand that's under discussion now.
1: Yeah, so the the idea would be to add one additional position both in men and women, uh, which would give um, one additional match. So number 64 will compete against number 65, both in men and women, and uh, if the refugee team is uh, really that good, then they also might make the top 16 in the mixed team and we, we might see them compete in the mixed team. So, But it's still very much under discussion. It uh, depends uh, on a cross-sports uh, decision by the IOC executive board because uh, they want to make sure that it's done um as universal as possible uh, across all the sports. And we hope we can do this. Um, we we have uh, already, I would say, uh, one person that is very much motivated to work with, which is Sally Park, who is starting with us uh, working for a year at the Centre in Lausanne. Mm. And she's pretty much the, the driver behind the project to get a refugee uh, team in Paris. So Sally, of course, has... Uh... Had great
0: success with Bhutan and some other teams in the past, uh, Korean archer and coach. And uh, that's exciting news that she'll be joining the Archery Center in Lausanne. Absolutely. So you you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Sally Park, now part of the WA family at the Archery Excellence Center in Lausanne, Switzerland. Now, um, this Olympic cycle is a big challenge for some countries, Tom, because with that full year lost from the Olympic qualification period because of 2020 Tokyo being in 2021, um, the first push for slots is really the Asian Games in China. Uh, it's not technically the first qualifying event because that's being held for the World Championship, but then uh, results from Asian Games will be rolled into the into the process, if I understand correctly.
1: Absolutely. So uh, we will look at the results of the Asian Games after we have the results of the World Championships. And it also is going to be tougher for uh,
0: women to qualify under the new ability standards because the women's score has been raised by five points. The minimum qualifying score, you need a pair of 305s. You need a 610 total out of 720 points. There's a dozen team quotas. 36 places uh, will be selected per gender for the games from the team quotas. The Berlin World Championship next year is going to be a little tougher to qualify at. But it's interesting to me that a lot of shooters think that this is a good thing. Only podium finishers in Berlin can qualify for the game. So only three teams per gender or nine places will be awarded in Berlin. And the feedback I'm getting from archers, Tom, they think that's more fair. They like it.
1: Um, Look, the the feedback we had from the previous games was that uh, the fact that it was uh, based really on one event, Uh, which was the world championships. And if you had a bad day that day, uh, you would be in trouble. And also there was a a chance that from our three major continents, uh, one of the major continents would not even have a team. So by now guaranteeing that the Asian continental champion, the American continental champion, and the European continental champion are guaranteed of spots as a team, we think that we get a better balance. We then also have the three best teams of the World Championships, and it's and it's really the ones that win a medal, like you said, and not someone that I would say just passed the second round uh, <clears throat> that gets three team spots. So, yes, uh, the the qualification will take longer for most teams in the sense that uh, you you won't have that certainty a year before the games. But you have much more chances to qualify because you have then the final qualifying tournament just before the Games and also two places for the World Ranking List. So a team that is doing quite well all the time but has a bad World Championships will still be able to go to the Games. And this, this was one of the criticisms that we had was that if you had a bad day, the team round day of the world championships your chances of having a team were nearly gone and so we feel really that the consistency will pay off uh and uh, we will have a good balance and we will have for sure the the best teams across continents present well tom this is uh,
0: obviously being received in the right uh, spirit by all these shooters that i've talked to because it's clear to them that they'll benefit in the long run from this change. And uh, I think by the time this wraps up, we will find better balance. Uh, uh, there was a lot of scrambling going on before Tokyo as you're well aware. And I think and maybe also, we'll I, see a little less of
1: that maybe. And also I think it, it also revalues the world championship because uh, you, have, you have been at, at some of, of these world championships and it was really, uh, everyone was looking to that day of the Olympic qualification of the team And the moment that was passed, uh, all attention was gone, basically, because the most important thing was done, where it 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 overshadowed the world championships. championships. And 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 now winning a medal at the world championships will mean at the same time qualifying for the Olympics, and also it will take really the I would say uh, it will spread the attention also on the fact that we also have a world championships for compound, and it was the compound world championships titles were a little bit. Devalued because we had that Olympic qualification that took so much attention. So we really feel that this is also, from a media and a, an attention point of view, the better solution. Tom, the uh, World
0: Cup gets underway in two days as we speak right now. Um, I believe that this will be a great start to the season. Some of the top teams are not going to be there, but many of them are. Uh, we're going to have the stars of last year, people like Mettek Gadzos, the Olympic champion, people like Brady Ellison. People like Jack Williams, who we'll be talking to in a short while, um, the champion of the World Cup circuit from this past season. And I think that it's a wonderful thing that we're going to be seeing uh, everybody in Antalya once again, as you prepare to head there yourself. Um, what are you looking forward to the most as you as you head to Turkey?
1: I would say seeing, I would say so many countries because it's the first event uh, well since Yangton where we have actually... It's I'm not sure, I haven't checked if what the numbers were, but we were going to v- be very close to the numbers of countries of the world championship. So it's uh, <clears throat> it's really going to be a, a world cup uh, with stress on the world. Where uh, in 2021, uh, because of the travel restrictions, we didn't have so many teams going. So that is definitely um, a very good thing. Uh, the other thing is that. Um, we will see many, I would say, new faces. Uh, I think many teams have made changes both in athletes and in coaching staff. Uh, We see some some faces back on the field of play as coach. Uh, Thinking of Witzel van Alte, who disappeared from our sport for some time and he will be there not as a coach for Netherlands or Italy but for Belgium. Yes, Uh, And there will be some other uh, interesting changes. So, I think it's it's going to be an exciting uh, week. Yeah, it's it's an exciting World Cup season. We'll also have some other multi-sport uh, events uh, during the, the summer, uh, especially the World Games uh, with compounds and, um, and, and, and Field Archery for the week of Nabebo. So, yeah, it's going to be an exciting season.
0: Yeah, the USA Archery has uh, a big emphasis on the World Games with uh, their hope that it'll be a nice showcase for Compound, Tom. And I think that uh, seeing Compound at that level uh, in the United States will be a good thing for the sport. And I think that uh, they'll get some excitement out of that. They're they're pitching it as an opportunity to show what Compound could do in the Olympic Games. That's the purpose of the World Games, of course, is to give sports that are not in the Olympic Games Uh, chance to shine, and I think that that uh, is the focus right now for USA Archery.
1: Well, we hope it is, because that's what we asked him to do.
0: (laughs) Tom Dillon, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us uh, from very late evening where you are, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you after you get back from Turkey.
1: Pleasure as always, George, and uh, look forward to hearing what uh, the big cat has to say, and also Jack Williams, who we look forward to seeing in Antalya.
0: Jack Williams, you've packed up your bags. You're getting ready to go to Antalya. Are you excited?
2: Yeah, I'm super excited. You know, this is the first World Cup of the season. We had our Arizona Cup, uh, what is it now? A bit over a week ago. That wasn't a spectacular showing for me. So, came home, worked on a few things, got that all situated. And now it's time to actually do it on the world stage and start the whole circuit again.
0: It is exactly 200 days from when you're going to release your first arrow in Antalya to when you shot that perfect arrow to upset Brady in that tie break in the recurve men's final at Yankton in the World Cup grand final last year, making you the World Cup circuit champion for 2021. What have you been doing in those 200 days to get ready, not just for this, but the shortened Olympic cycle we're dealing with now?
2: Yeah, well, so the first bit of that was a good break. And we've been going hard for what seemed like an eternity after getting pushed back a year for COVID. So it's like, well, you train super hard for the 2020 Olympics, and then it doesn't happen until 2021. So it's even harder to push there, and then World well, Championships, World Cup final. It just seemed like the cycle that would never end. So at least the first month was a good break. You know, just something <laughs> to clear my head, get get ready for next season. You know, start. Fresh, basically.
0: Yeah, well-deserved break, no doubt about it.
2: Exactly. You know, vacation, family time. still shooting, but definitely not training. There, I'm just practicing. And then, more recently, since the you know start of the new year, it's been more starting to get back into it. More of a training, trying to focus on higher scores, get the volume, get the intensity, all done good. So then. I can carry that through a season where we're traveling for 10, 15 days, maybe even back to back, fly straight to another tournament, and I can maintain performance while not getting a ton of arrows in week after week.
0: Are you feeling the um, – the, I'm going to use the word pressure, but I don't really mean it. Are, are you feeling the urgency? I guess that's a better word. Are you feeling the urgency of the fact that we've lost a year from this Olympic training cycle And yet you had five years on the previous one.
2: Um, I don't see it as much of an urgency because from my perspective, I'm already up there. So it's more of a maintain more than anything. It's, I'm not trying to improve, you know, somebody who might not have been at the level that I was come 2020 or 2021, they have even less time to try to get, you know, good for trials and be ready and make the team Where For me, it's even less time that I have to maintain. So hopefully I'm going to be shooting, you know, all, everything goes well. I'm shooting 680, pace at most things that I shoot at, you know, depending on wind and weather. And I can just keep that because I know that will be a competitive score. So that's kind have of my, you uh, mentality.
0: Have you seen the, uh, the new qualification routine for the Olympic games?
2: Yes. So the new team process, I think, is actually a lot better. It's, we kind of got screwed out of World Championships in 2019. So I think it'll be a much more fair system and a much more realistic representation at the games where it's like, okay, these are, these are the best teams, not these are the best teams that shot the best at one tournament.
0: Uh, It'll be very interesting to see what happens. And of course, you know, Jack, you're you're not expected to maintain Paris 2024 level at all times, but I imagine by this point in the season, as you're literally getting ready to get on a plane to go to Antalya, you're, you know, getting ready to peak, shall we say? Would that be a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we leave Saturday, we arrive in Turkey Sunday night. So Monday practice day in Turkey will be kind of the make sure everything's all set. Make sure that everything I've been doing the last few weeks has paid off. I've made good good changes and making sure that I'm ready for the new season.
0: How do you feel about the new change in the World Cup situation where the top eight no longer have to deal with a sort of delayed by kind of situation?
2: Um, it's it's an interesting perspective because you know I'm torn. I like the way that a top eight person could get protected for the first two matches because it kind of gave an incentive to shoot well in qualifying as well. Um, because if there's no cut and there's nothing to really count for, it's hard to stay like meaningful because at the end of the day, you have to come out guns blazing on your finals or your uh, elimination matches. But if you're off, even if you're in the number one seed and you're going up against the 100th place guy, you can get taken out first round if you're not Happen, happens first, all the
0: time we've seen it in the past absolutely
2: you so know, I remember. there's a little bit uh, more of that chance now
0: yeah however to be fair they did add points for yeah. the finals
2: yes so, so that's if you make top like, eight
0: you get some points
2: you get some more bonus points there and now you could have a more comfortable ride into world cup final so it's like that's where i'm torn because i really like that system but with the way that modern archery is set system and how no matter who you are on the field whether you're first all the way down to last 12 15 good arrows could be maybe even nine is all you need in order to take out anybody
0: well you're absolutely correct and hopefully for your sake uh that'll be your nine arrows that you need so
2: <laughs> yeah exactly that's where it's like come out shoot 330s and you could be 60 and oop, done next match. yeah it's possible Uh,
0: back in my day Jack 330 was a respectable score just so you're aware
2: Uh, (laughs) that's I mean that's still at some places a really good score but Uh, not here (laughs) definitely changed (laughs) exactly I would Uh, not be surprised if good weather we're seeing multiple 350s shot on the field
0: yeah and and those numbers are uh, absolutely achievable by a number of people even at this event where the Koreans aren't going to be I mean you're going to be there Brady's going to be there Meta is going to be there and Florian Unruh will be there. And I think that, yep. uh, you know, it's going to be a, a great test of preparation, but I, I feel pretty good about your prospects, all of you guys on the U S team. I think that uh, the numbers are in your favor based on what I saw from Arizona cup and, and what I've been talking to coach Lee about, I think you guys are, are uh, sharpening your sword pretty well there.
2: Yeah. And I think that's a team round who'll have a really good team to, you know, that's another focus that Team USA is focusing on as our team uh, finishes, because typically the last cycle, we might do decent individually. You know, Brady might win or I'll come in podium or we'll be up there, top eight maybe, and then our team is out like first or second round. So now, we're really the, focusing on that.
0: Yeah. The, the men's team is strong. Uh, besides yourself and Brady being on the team, you've got Matt on there. And uh, I'm slipping. Who is the fourth person you're sending?
2: we got two Mats. Riqua oh, and that's Nifle. right.
0: That's what, that's what messed For me up. Matt yep. Riqua and Matt Noful. So you've got Matt Riqua and you've got Matt Noful besides yourself and Brady. Um, yeah. But the women's team is a little less experienced. I mean, you know, to be to be honest. However, I'm seeing some impressive stuff out of a couple of those ladies. What is your feeling about the women's team and how they're developing now?
2: Yeah, I... I really think that the people on the teams can do really well. I've seen scores that they shoot and, you know, they're very capable to do it. It's just a matter of when they step up on that stage, are they going to be prepared or is it going to be a little bit of a learning curve? Cause I know it was for me the first time I went to Shanghai in 2018, it was a learning curve. And sure. I was like, Oh, this is real. And it took me a minute. I shot pretty bad that first tournament, but now you can see I've, you know, learned what I need to focus on in finals matches and matches that matter, traveling the world, the time zone changes, all of this stuff they're going to have to learn. And I think they're very capable of shooting scores. It's just how well they learn, how quickly they learn almost.
0: Yeah. How quickly they can adapt to the difference between, you know, shooting in, in national tournaments where you still have a high comfort factor to standing on that international stage where, adrenaline kicks in differently shall we say
2: mm-hmm. definitely
0: all right well i i have a feeling that this is going to be a good week for you and for the rest of the u.s team so jack i am going to let you uh finish packing and head to the airport i really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the podcast today my friend
2: Perfect. glad to be here so well, we're, happy to we're share gonna, my experience
0: and we were going to want to talk to you again uh after you get back and talk about uh, how that went and debrief yeah, and all that retail. sort of thing yeah.
2: Hopefully with a lot of gold medals around my neck. and
0: Exactly. It's always great talking with Jack Williams, but now the moment you've all been waiting for, ladies and gentlemen, it is the big cat, Steve Anderson back on the podcast. Hey, Steve.
3: Here I am.
0: Here you are. And Steve, um, earlier in the week, we dropped a line on the Easton target Facebook page telling folks that if they wanted to ask questions of you, um, and have a moment with greatness, as I put it. <laughs> they could do so, and man, we got a bunch.
3: Why? Uh, why not ask questions of you as well? Because I thought
0: that it would be more popular to ask for questions of you, and I turned out to be right.
3: You well, know There's maybe I don't one know for sure, but maybe. I'm gonna go ahead. No. I was just gonna say, I think we should uh, check with the audience. I think people probably like the technical side of this the most? And I think you can provide the most real nitty-gritty technical detail type stuff.
0: Well, we're a team here, Steve. So I think that there are I have my deficiencies and you do a great job helping to bolster uh, some of those areas where I'm weak, like some of the compound stuff. So I see this as a team effort.
3: You know what? I was writing a marketing plan the other day and I found I used the word bolster too much. Really, so I started looking up synonyms, and now I use the word augment. Oh yeah, I do augment. my best to augment your strengths. Well, thank you, and vice versa. Thank you.
0: That's what you call a team effort. Anyway, bolster is not a word I use too often, but I I just happened to drop it in. It's funny, you know. It's kind of like when you buy a particular car and then you start noticing it everywhere. The fact that you caught yourself using that word, and then I happened to drop it in for the first time in a blue moon, caught your attention. Works the same way.
3: On the note of vehicles, I have a 1998 Honda Civic GX. That's natural gas, people. You don't see those hardly anywhere.
0: Now, that has a lot of provenance in the archery community, that particular car.
3: Yeah, that car. First, if you go to Hoyt, there's like six engineers who have that vehicle, the natural gas vehicle became very popular about 2008 when gas first hit $4 a gallon here in the U S and then it kind of waned a little bit, you know, when I first bought the vehicle from Kevin Wilkie, I was, I was driving at that. Yeah. 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 You know, he was, when he was at Hoyt, he had it, he was driving about 60 miles a day or so each way. So 120 round trip. Yeah. Anyhow, when I bought it from him, this was after he left to work at Kuyu and he was now working from home. So we had, you know, really no need for this vehicle anymore, purely a commuter vehicle and natural gas was about a dollar 80 ish per gallon mm-hmm. equivalent and gasoline was probably in the neighborhood of about 2 bucks. It wasn't a huge difference, but I was getting a vehicle that was one efficient, two extremely rare, and three really freaking cool. Like everyone thinks I'm really cool in that car,
0: especially when they see you come out of that little thing.
3: Okay, 3 is a lie. 2 it is rare. 3 is a lie. I get no respect in that vehicle. People do not respect you on the road. And here's another thing about it. It's only got like 108 horsepower or something like that, and that's at the crankshaft.
0: And how many miles is on that thing?
3: Uh, 170,000 now. So it is not the strongest of motors.
0: However, uh, internal combustion motors can run a lot longer on natural gas longevity-wise than on gasoline because there's a lot fewer harmful combustion products that get into the crankcase, sulfuric acid being the main one.
3: Well... I'll tell you this much when you're at 56th West, which is the road that has the on-ramp to I-80 West heading towards my house from work, you can't just get on that on-ramp and head down. You know, It's a long on-ramp. You get down on there and then you look over and you go, oh crap, there's a bunch of cars. It's going to be hard to yield, hard to merge. Then, you're in trouble at that point. You got Those cars are
0: doing fast. 80 miles an hour or more. Yeah.
3: My car doesn't get to 80 fast. It doesn't. It takes, I think it's zero to 60 is legitimately like 19 seconds. So wow. when you get on that on-ramp, first what I do, even before that, when I'm coming up that little hill on 5600 West, if I see that another car is going to turn right onto the on-ramp, I know that they have the power to not respect the entirety of the on-ramp. So what they'll do They'll get on, they'll lollygag down the on-ramp, and then they'll go, oh, shoot, I got I to gotta merge, and it's pretty tight, so I'm going to punch it. And they, they get in just fine. And the hard part about this on-ramp is it's a, it's a slight downhill, which helps me, but then it goes to an uphill real quick right as you get on the freeway.
0: So you're losing so, momentum.
3: Yeah, I don't have – You know, I need to be hitting 75, and it's tough to do. So if I see a car in front of me coming up 56 west – that is gonna be getting on that on-ramp, I back it up. You know, I, I let them get some, get some space ahead of me so I can punch it and have a full go. Because they may have, you know, a 200 yard gap on me and they hit it at the end, they get up to 75 miles an hour, they merge, no problem. Well, you know, I run that whole runway to get to 75 miles an hour and then I come up on them at the very end. But if I had stepped behind them early on, I have no prayer. You know, by the time they punch it, I'm only probably going 45. I may only get up to 60 miles an hour,
0: which so, is a minus 20 to 30 from what the traffic flow is doing.
3: Correct. Um, That's
0: a bit this spooky. Is,
3: this is like saying I'm sh- like I'm basically shooting uh, one of those youth plastic Easton recurve bows.
0: In a world that's of Formula strange. 1.
3: Yeah and, they, yeah, and everyone else has got Formula 1 vehicles. So I saw Formula 1 question pop up on the question. You did.
0: That's that. why I brought it up.
3: But anyhow, so despite my vehicle being very rare, and it is cool. I'll say it is cool because it's a massive cost savings, especially right now. It is not fast. No. <laughs> not at all.
0: Speaking of, of cars that are small and hard to get in and out of. Yeah. The Roadster. The Roadster. Oh, my goodness.
3: You are it not going to drive down the road and say, oh, hey, there's another car just like mine.
0: No, but it took me a good 20 seconds to get in and out of that thing the other day. Really? Yeah. It how, has, were you
3: having a good back day or a bad back day?
0: Medium. And <laughs> after, it, wasn't, it wasn't my back. It's my, I mean, Steve, you would not be able to get in that thing. I don't know how that yeah, does it,
3: it. I am very well-versed at getting in and out of small vehicles.
0: Okay, but this thing is based on a Lotus Elise chassis or yeah. one of the Lotus chassis, and so the sills, the door sills. What's the normal door sill on a car to you? What does it look like, about four or five inches wide, something like that?
3: Yeah, probably. I can, I'm looking at this car right now.
0: These things are a foot high and a foot across. Yeah. So what Greg does is he puts both legs in and then swings himself in.
3: Wait, wait, but there's wait, no wait, wait.
0: there's no handholds. So getting in and out of this car, if somebody had taken video, I would pay money to make sure that never saw the light of day.
3: So I think I'd have to sit on the ground and then slither up and in.
0: Something like that. yeah, no joke. It is I, because there's so much distance from the from the door sill to the actual cockpit, you've got to go across this beam which is a solid carbon fiber construction to get in the car. And of course I'm doing my most utmost effort not to make the car dirty or get my shoes scuffing the door or any of that stuff. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it's Jim's car. It's, you know, Greg's driving the, and I don't want to leave a mark on there and getting in and up, but once you're in there, I, I will confess I had slight claustrophobia for about 10 seconds
3: This is interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could feel I've occasionally had very, very slight claustrophobia. Like one time I was basically stuffed into the very back seat of a 727 with an engine uh, right next to my head instead of, you know, being able to see out a window. And the way the, the construction of the luggage stuff was, I was in this little tiny compartment and then, you know, two more people to get to the aisle it was an unpleasant feeling, you know, that kind of oppressive feeling you get sometimes. And I had the same thing for about 10 seconds in the car. And I was desperately trying not to let Greg know that I was going through that.
3: I think everyone could probably see it on your face.
0: Maybe, but I made sure I turned away.
3: (laughs) It's a pretty cool car. They've, Done it really it? is. With it. What year is it? 2013, 2011?
0: Oh, wait. They stopped making them in 11.
3: And this is, this is a Tesla Roadster.
0: Yeah, Tesla, an original Tesla Roadster it's that Jimmyson had gotten. Now, here's, here's why I bring this up. You're, you're complaining about the natural gas vehicle that you drive uh, with its 0 to 60 in 19 seconds. I bet 60. you're being generous. Yes. I'll bet you're being generous. Oh, if God. the windows were open, it would probably take longer. Anyway, here's the thing. Back in Van Nuys, Jim didn't drive this thing all the time. What he did was he gave it to his favorite engineer, Gary Felice, to use as a commuter car. Because you got to keep the electrons flowing in the battery pack. Uh-huh. So Gary used to drive that thing to work and, and home and plug it in and you know kind of keep everything moving. Because there's no fluids to deal with, per se, but there's, you got to keep the electrons going. My proposal to you, Steve, is that you go visit Greg with a bottle of uh, his favorite scotch and see if he's willing to do something like that for you. My, just a suggestion. I'm just suggesting it because, you know, I'm looking out for you here. But I think you should try to, you know, convince Greg that you should keep the electrons flowing in the roadster and use it as, as your uh, commuter car.
3: It sounds like I may never be able to get out of it if I get in it.
0: Well, that is the downside, yes.
3: Okay, I just pl- looked up. Gary's Honda. a pretty tall guy, too, though. What's that?
0: Gary Felice is a pretty tall guy, too.
3: Oh, okay, yeah, I was, I was thinking different, Gary. Um, well, I, I will, I'm sure I'll get a chance to sit in it at least, so I'll give it a test. Uh, maybe we'll take a video or something.
0: Yeah, I think it might be interesting to do a time-lapse video of you trying to get in and out of that thing
3: time lapse <laughs> all right we'll do that hey here about this i just looked up on a government website the zero to 60 info on my vehicle my commuter vehicle yeah it is 15 wait 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 unloaded it says it's 13.64 seconds okay 15.24 loaded uh, that's for a vehicle. new
0: one with, you know, with an engine that hasn't had hundred and whatever thousand miles on it, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. This is a fresh power unit, as they would say in Formula One. Um, that's right. This, the gasoline equivalent is uh, almost a full second faster, zero to 60. Wow. So that's still not terribly fast. No, they're not. Neither of them are fast. My quarter mile time would be 19.84 seconds. Wow. At 72 miles an hour. So it takes me a quarter mile to reach 72, which really means with my car, it probably takes a quarter mile to reach like 63. So I got to be really like that on-ramp is not, it's long, but it's not that long, right? It's long enough. I can get to seventy. But if I don't use the whole on ramp, I'm not getting to it. It's yeah. Real tough.
0: Yeah. Hey, you want to jump into those questions
3: we've got? Yeah, I think everyone's probably heard enough of 1998 Honda Civic GX. Well, there's CMG. going to be a percentage
0: of listeners that are that are only interested in that last 10 minutes of conversation, but you know that most people are here for target archery, which is why we're going to talk about Formula One. <laughs> That's your first question, okay. Jimmy Lutz. Jimmy Lutz. Top shooter, I believe he's headed to Antalya too this weekend. If I'm not, oh no, he's not. Is he? No,
3: he's, yeah, we're all going to
0: Korea. Korea, Korea. Anyway, Jimmy Lutz, super important question: Do you think the retirement of Kimi and the rise of George Russell will ultimately be the downfall of the great sport we all love, Formula One? Thanks, Jimmy Lutz, longtime <laughs> F1 fan.
3: Oh, uh, Jimmy and I are big F1 fans, and we—I was kind of a attending. Kimi fan
0: just because of his lifestyle.
3: Yeah, uh, Kimmy Riker, I mean, it's just interesting to see him deal with anyone with a camera or a microphone, right? Right. And the way he talks is hilarious. and He's just a character. Yeah, everyone, did anyone not like him?
0: No, I, I think most people liked him unless your name is Hamilton.
3: Yeah, maybe. Um, so, onto to that super important question. <sighs> now that Kimmy is gone... And George's Russell's is a prominent driver for the prominent Mercedes team. I, I, we're not going to have anyhow, Jimmy knows my thoughts on George Russell and his weaknesses. I think he's really interesting driver. He doesn't have the confidence to win. I can tell you that. And, I'm not going to say why. I can just I can look at his life and tell he does not have the confidence to be a Formula 1 champion.
0: The second most important question comes from the Bearbow project. Will you shoot bearbow after you retire from compound division? <sighs> yeah, probably why not. And then the third most important question is how do you feel about the new Red Bull Tower trends being as reliable as Renault power units of 2017 back to Formula 1.
3: <laughs> yeah. So that's a joke about how the Red Bulls can't finish the race right now. They're they're breaking down every time. Honda Motors, too. They're not technically Honda this year, but they are. So that's uh interesting to say the least. But yeah, as a team, they've only finished, I think, 50% of the races thus far.
0: Wow. Okay. On to serious archery stuff. Yeah, on to archery. Do you always press your bow by hand in the middle of a field round to twist up a yoke, or was that a one-time thing? Question from Jason Pfister. Yes,
3: I have done this many a times, many a times to get the feel back that I need or adjust the cam timing thing. Um, Now, I did it mid-round at Lancaster this year in the indoor round. Well, Jason saw worked.
0: you do it, and uh, Jason saw you do it in Washington a few years ago, and he says that your grouping was about one inch lateral. Then you made the change, and you started crushing it. So obviously, it's a a time tested function of the big cat. Nobody. Yeah, needs I don't
3: remember exactly why I did it there, but you know, you so you make the you adjustment it, when you need to make the
0: adjustment. You put the bottom cam on your foot and then press down with your chest, or are you just crushing it in your in your massive hands. Which one? are hands. You doing?
3: Yeah, I oh. put the cam. I put the cam on my toe. You need to have a reliable second there with you. <clears throat> so I put the cam on my toe uh, in between my toes under the sole of my shoe, and then I just press down on the top cam. This is not something to try at home.
0: No, I was but, about to say uh, disclaimer: uh, Hoyt will not warranty your bow if you blow it up trying to do this. Correct. Or any other manufacturer.
3: Correct. So I just press down with my hands and it eventually gives you enough leeway, then you got to hold it there while someone makes the adjustment. So you need them to look at it and you go, Hey, I want you to, you know, add one twist, determine right now, which way that twist is going to go. Cause some people will pull the yoke off the hanger and then they look at it to try to figure it out. It's like, no, 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 we're at a fixed time limit here. I can only hold this thing down for so long. So I need you to figure it out. So we look at it before and and then do it. Yeah. It, I don't know. It's not one of those things I do very often. But when I when I'm in the middle of a round and things are like really bad for whatever reason, I'll make the change.
0: Thanks to Jason Fister for that question. Jason was uh, one of the top recurve archers in the United States for a long time back in the '90s. So uh, he's been keeping an eye on what you're doing. As he, I think, has been shooting some compound lately. Stephen Shepard has a serious question, which is to please discuss the process of selecting and setting up arrows from the long draw archer perception, spines, arrow lengths, point, point weights, draw lengths, etc. He says he's starting to go down the rabbit hole of target archery. And like you, he has a longer draw, but he's not finding much info that makes sense for him. So what would your advice be to people like you who are well over six feet tall and need the, uh, Uh, whatever special consideration goes into picking out stuff for the long draw archer.
3: Well, a lot of guys with long draw length and depends on the game they're playing, but sometimes they try to get a little greedy and just get a massive amount of speed. And then you run into issues of getting arrows stiff enough and and things of that nature. So I don't really shoot any bows over all my target bows are generally about 58 pounds. And with that, I can shoot a three twenty five X 10 or, you know, our aluminum's, which for me, the 27s and the 2318s are 250 spine and a 300 spine, respectively. But that poundage, I can make those work really well with point weights that are normal and, you know, no crazy. There's nothing really weird about that setup. If I try so do you- to go heavier poundage, then I run into issues.
0: Yeah, the point is that you've got plenty of energy storage under the force draw curve at those draw lengths. And as a result, you don't need to, as you put it, get greedy on poundage. Um, and you start chasing your tail a little bit if you try to get an arrow stiff enough to deal with the extra poundage plus the length. Because now you've got a heavier arrow that's tuning weaker that's doing other stuff. And so um, don't be greedy on poundage would be maybe one of the, one yeah, of the, the caveats here. Yeah, you see it.
3: Here you see it more in on the other side of stuff. You see, you know, you see guys go to Redding and they want to shoot like 65 pounds for some reason. What for? And they're like, Oh, get it going 300 feet per second. I'm like, you don't, you don't need that. You know, if you want to shoot 3d the benefit of 3d is most the 3d shafts are very stiff anyways, and being all carbon, they react stiffer than other shafts and so, yeah, if you want to shoot 70 pounds because you like the way that feels, you could certainly do it. That is uh, that is doable there. You're going to be cutting your arrows short as possible probably. But, um, yeah, it, it's you – know, he doesn't say what his draw length is, but, man, it, we've – the long draw length guys have never had it better than we do today. Companies are starting to make more bows in longer draw lengths, and they're starting to make more arrows in longer – well, that fit longer draw lengths, stiffer arrows – um you know even on the hunting side 200 spine is becoming a thing you know we've got a 200 spine hunting arrow and we're going to probably have more um i remember a couple years ago someone who used to work for us told me when i said hey we need more we need more arrows in 250 spine and they they told me i was very wrong about that and showed me the sales data to back it up and then about 2 years later they were designing every arrow we make in 250 spine. So um, anyhow, we've, had, we've got it really well right now. Stuff, you know, for the most part can fit us. Good. Okay.
0: And a uh, question from Andre Pounds. Good name for an archer, uh, as in Pounds of the Ten Ring. What is your favorite or preferred method for bushing installation, a drop of hot melt or bagging? Bagging, by the way, refers to the idea of taking a piece of plastic bag, putting it over the open tube, and then pushing the bushing over that to make the plastic bag into a gasket that, that grips the, uh, the bushing.
3: Yeah, and it works. And we get people calling all the time, and they get told to do that, or they'll say, well, I got told to use a bag, and that's just stupid. You know, and they can't believe that that's a, a method that people will use. But, yeah, if it's an all-carbon arrow, like all my super drives, I just use a plastic bag on them. Thankfully I've never had an issue with IDs of arrows being bad and bushings have always been good. So one, one little plastic bag did it for me in the past. When I was, when I was a younger archers, just starting, I used a few different brands of arrows and I'd sometimes have to double up that plastic bag and, and leave it a little loose going in because the tolerances were either poor on the bushing or poor on the shaft. I'm not sure, but I saw it on point and, bushing installation so anything aluminum core or aluminum i just use a little bit of hot melt.
0: with that said the original aluminum arrow that handled insert knocks was the ace and bagging right from the very beginning was recommended in the eastern technical bulletins of that time talking 88 89 here and bagging has always worked well so long as you don't bunch it up um, you know, something like the bag of a bread bag is a good thickness to use, you know, as opposed to say a Ziploc freezer bag, if you if you know what I mean from the thickness of the plastic. But yeah. uh, bagging works fine. Now, a drop of hot melt, I like to use for pin knocks particularly, because you need the extra adhesive bond to really allow the pin knock, the pin to protect the arrow on an incoming hit. If you bag a pin knock, it'll work from a launch standpoint. It just won't protect as well if you hit the pin with an incoming arrow. Mm. So hot melt works better, in my opinion, for a pin knock. But uh, certainly, bagging also works. And bagging also works for things like, say, the biter out knocks. You know how people like to use the biter out knocks on X10 sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem with that is that if the fit's not perfect, and sometimes it's not, um, you need something. To sort of shim up the fit between the shaft and the knock internal diameter, and some people use a piece of dental floss or something like that. The trouble with that is it puts a hot spot of stress on the knock, and eventually it'll crack that knock. Bagging puts the stress 360 degrees evenly around the knock, so I like bagging much better for that type of application. Steve Yi has an interesting question, and uh, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask your opinion: Can you run a pro tour backwards? In other words, reverse the point knock-ins and get successful arrow flight. He says he was asked that question
3: the other day. Anyhow, yeah, I saw that question. and I was going to ask you what the answer to that would be because I don't I, – I mean, can you? Yeah, you can do a lot of things, and they'll fire out of the bow. Will it work effectively? I don't know. In a sense, Steve's talking about running the, – the Pro Tour is tapered from back to front effectively. Right. And he's talking about flipping that around to where the taper would go front to back and you would have the weakest section in the tail. I would think it would work. Not sure how well.
0: But here's the point of the Pro Tour. The Pro Tour was designed for compound launch. The way that compounds deliver energy to the arrow, you don't want a weaker tail. That's why people like Real Wild set records with X10s by cutting off three inches from the back of the X10, basically turning it into a Pro Tour. So the bottom line is, yeah, it'll work. Will it work as well as the product is designed in the first place? Probably not.
3: And then you have How a about separate for a problem. recurve.
0: Uh, yeah, it probably would work okay for a recurve. It wouldn't work better than an X10, but it would certainly work better than most of the all-carbon parallel shafts out there. Now, with that said, though, um, the problem you're going to run into is the points are not designed to fit the tail diameter yeah, on, the
3: point shoulder would be too small.
0: Yeah, uh, too big. Uh, excuse me, you're correct. The point shoulder would be too small, and the shaft diameter would be too big. Yep. Now, you know, some folks might say, well, I can sand it down or whatever, and yeah, you can. But um, the bottom line is the Pro Tour was designed for a specific purpose, which is being launched from a compound bow and getting the most points that you can with a compound bow outdoors. And it's designed to be shot with that taper in the front so that you get the benefit aerodynamically and also you get proper point fit. And conversely, you also have the correct knock end component fit on the back end of that arrow. You would have a problem potentially with knock pins or knocks if you tried to stick them into the point end, they might be too big and might whack your uh, blade, for example, things like that. So uh, yeah, you can, that doesn't mean you should. Roland Deason is asking a question of you. Do you have any tips on separating the bow hand from the release hand in the mind? Even with a hinge release, when I think it's close to firing, I tense up a little and add movement to the sight. And as a result, my release hand tenses up, making the shot take longer to fire. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Most of the time it's minor. I can even hit X's, but sometimes it costs him a nine. And this kind of dovetails with some of the stuff you've been working on with Shot IQ, doesn't it?
3: Right, yeah, which is like a separation of... The powers, really. So the whole thing there is you can only tell yourself to do one thing. It's hard to do things subconsciously, right? So you want to do one thing actively. At least that's how my brain registers it. But again, worth checking out Shot IQ because everyone's going to pick up some tidbits at the very least that are very helpful to them. It sounds to me like maybe he's not quite finishing the shot. Some people will finish the shot with their bow hand. And what I mean by that is rather than continuing to actively engage the shot, pull through that shot and make that shot happen on the release side, they get really, really close. And then what actually finishes the shot is almost a preemptive follow through. Yep. And Sometimes that's all that little preemptive follow through most right hand archers. If you see their shot fire, the bow will go straight away into the left a little bit. And if you, if you're getting a lot of like left side misses, you're, you're probably not being very patient on the release side. You're trying to fire the bow with your front hand unknowingly, of course, but you know, that's one of those situations where you need to continue to engage the release hand and be willing to commit to that we were, you know, I was talking with Kevin Wilkie recently just about shooting stuff. And I think I mentioned that occasionally I will do just that. And this kind of like what I've been working on is just being willing to, to work through the shot. And we talked about Randy Ulmer and Randy Ulmer famously used a bag full of releases that were all the same, but with different speeds. Right. And his, he was committing to doing the shot execution the right way and then being surprised every time. And I'm not necessarily saying go do that, but what he was doing was committing to the shot execution until shot execution was done. He wasn't ba- bouncing back to the release hand and preemptively following through, which when Joel was on here, Joel said, we brace for impact. Your follow through is the brace for impact, right? Or, or the right. impact itself. So when you're bracing for impact, that's when you're doing what I would call that preemptive follow through. Anyhow, if you didn't listen to the the Joel Turner podcast, I would encourage you to, and I would encourage you to go spend the $200 to go learn from that.
0: One little trick that I like to uh, give to shooters who are dealing with something similar on the recurve side is focus on your elbow, your draw elbow, focus on, mentally focus on having that come straight back because that'll take your attention off of what it is you're doing with that release hand itself. And sometimes that clicks with some people and it works really well. So maybe try that as well.
3: That's yeah. And that's another thing I've, uh, I've thought too, is, you know, the elbows got to come straight back through or the mental imagery of having uh a string tied to you and the target, to your release hand and the target. And I always specifically, since I'm shooting a hinge off operating off rotation, I always think about that string being tied to like my pinky finger. So right. that if that can rotate around, right? If that is doing the pulling, it will, and the, the index finger is locked in on that position on the release, and that pinky finger comes around, it's gonna rotate the release. That was, uh, that was just something that Charlie Perry, a guy from Idaho, taught me a long time ago. And I've had a lot of these little things stick in my head, right? And some of these little little mental imagery things have stayed with me throughout all of my shooting. And I don't know if I've always told people that, but I have borrowed some of the things they've told me and kept them in the game for a long time, in my, in my game, that is.
0: Next question comes from uh, the optics guy, the the guy who probably knows more about scopes and eyeglasses than anybody else I know, which is Chuck Cooley. When group tuning pro tours, do you find it done easier with tube length or point weight? In other words, do you get married to say 120 grains as a point weight and adjust length from there? Or do you get married to the length and adjust point weight? i got some thoughts on this, but I want to hear what you have to say.
3: I'm kind of have to be married to length a little bit because of the fact that I have to cut the arrow down, uh, you know, a little bit, I don't get to cut much off at the way I, the way I set mine up and I don't shoot a pro tour. So I can't say that I have the most experience with this, but what I would guess is you're going to get out of, out of a compound, which Chuck shoots, I think you're going to see more out of point weight than you are length, assuming you're not talking significance amount significant amounts of length. Anytime someone asks me what to cut their X tens to, I say start at the end of the shelf. And that way you can still pull you know another half inch to an inch off or whatever it might be. But in there you'll you'll see quite a you know quite a difference if you go a full inch. But ultimately I think Point weight is probably going to do the most for an actual group tune after rest position. I think rest position is number one.
0: Okay, I agree with you about rest position. I think rest position is something a lot of people don't pay enough attention to. However, I'm going to say neither point weight or length matters as much as small amounts of weight adjustment on the bow.
3: You know, what I was going to say is the better way to do it is to cut all... The best way to decide what arrow works for you is to buy three spines of the same arrow, build them all up the exact same way, including length, and then see which one shoots the best, right? I get a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of really good shooters actually will ask me. They'll say, hey, I'm going from a 10 410 to an X-10 380. Should I leave them a little long? I'm like, well, why did you go to a 380 from a 410? They go, well, I felt like my 380s were, or my 410s were a little weak. It's like, well, then why are you, why are you leaving these long? You're just going to get the same result, you know? Yeah. So the other, the the other problem, try a bunch.
0: The other problem with hardware adjustments, uh, that is, point adjustments, is heavier points tend to be longer inside the arrow shaft. So if you're trying to decrease the dynamic spine of the arrow by going to a heavier point, But you're doing it with a mechanically longer point inside the arrow shaft. It effectively stiffens the arrow, so you end up chasing your tail.
3: Kind of cancels it out.
0: Yep, it does. And certainly, that's the case for recurve. It's a little less of an issue for compound. But at the end of the day, you are finding that most carbon arrows are relatively insensitive to point weight changes, mostly because of that factor. The other thing is that um, when we're talking about picking a spine, Um, some people you're going to find that half the people out there think that slightly weaker is better. And some people think that slightly stiffer is better. It often comes down to the individual shooter. So the follow-up question from Joel to Chuck's question was when picking a spine with pro tours and you're in between spines, do you think weaker with a lighter point or stiffer with a heavier point tunes out better? And I'm going to say it's a very individual thing.
3: There's too many factors at play to really say the, this. The, works. Cam,
0: the cam profile can have a big impact on that.
3: Yeah. The, hard, the hardest part about archery, and you know what? I took a 46-minute phone call from a guy the other day. He called in, and our people were struggling to understand exactly what he was looking for, and they sent me the call. And, you know, he wanted to know something. He wanted to have a, a calculation that I could give him to give him very af- affirmative answer to his very, very dynamic question that he didn't realize had a lot of moving parts to it. And that's archery in general. Like there's so many different things that come into play. Yeah. And, and the last one being, you could have two bows set up exactly the same. You know, I think Dave cousins had this. He told me once he had two bows set up so similar he could swap the sight from one to the other and not miss a beat, right? They were within a click on sight tape even. And he said he felt like one shot better than the other.
0: Absolutely. And it's even, it's even more so with a recurve bow.
3: Yeah. And I can imagine recurve just due to the materials and things of that nature. You, you have a little bit more variance and, you know, that's not to say that everyone needs to go by five sets of limbs because what you think feels good is often, just what you've had the most time with. so That's exactly right. Yeah, you it's, might be accustomed to one, and you like it, and then you pick up another one that someone else loves, and you hate that, and they hate yours, and that's just archery. The best way to determine what works best is is to shoot multiple spines of the arrow built the same exact way.
0: That's and, the only way you're really going to know what works best.
3: Yeah, and and then you can go, well what if I did them all a half inch longer? What would happen? And you kind of kind of got to have a little bit of just that knowledge going, something is not quite all the way here, you know, so I'm going to try this. I did that recently with the most recent I had was with a 2318. I was shooting them and I just thought this isn't, this isn't shooting as good as I feel like I'm shooting. I'm actually out shooting it right now. And that's, it's pretty rare that the human will outshoot the bow provided things aren't like really messed up, you know, but mm-hmm. it, what it was, was I had at that particular time, I had a 250 grain point in the arrow. And I just felt like if I made a little mistake, I got a big miss in my head. I thought, I think I need to get rid of some of this point weight. I think that point is just dominating the, the story here. Meaning if I start to move a little bit left, that point is going to go a lot left and it's going to pull the arrow with it. So I took a little bit of point weight out. Well, a lot of point weight. I went to 175. Immediately shot a lot better. You know, I think it was just now I was able to get some input into the arrow from my end rather than everything wanting to follow the point end. So yeah. Whatever that means, but I think people will get what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. And understanding this, when you change that point weight, you change several variables, you change the acceleration rate of the arrow, you changed the way the arrow behaves under load from the back. You changed to a degree the ramp up of what the string is doing as it is pushing on the arrow. I mean, you're changing a number of things there. You're also changing the lock time. Yeah, there's a lot there. So making... One change actually can have several effects and that you don't need to understand all of them. What you do need to do though, is, is take good notes so that you know what you've adjusted and what you got isn't memory dependent. Take good notes when you're playing with this stuff so that you can really correlate it to what you're, you are keeping a shot chart, right? So you're looking for, all right, what combination of stuff gave me the best grouping? Many people go through a lot of effort, don't take notes, and then they think they remember what worked. And uh, if it's three or four iterations ago, you can almost guarantee that they don't remember everything about it.
3: Yeah, and this is why I don't like to change bows a whole lot either and change oh, stuff. Yeah. I like to use the same stuff or very close to it. And that way I know I know what's going to work. Right. I, yeah. I didn't really have to do any experimentation with any of my indoor setups this year. any of my outdoor setups this year to get them to where I felt like they were shooting pretty good. Because
0: for the most part, they're basically three years old, those setups, right? I mean, I I know the bow models may have changed, but I'm talking about the fundamentals that you are putting into these setups.
3: Yeah, at least that old, if not six, seven, you know, right, eight years old.
0: Good question from Ryan Johnson comes up. Um, This applies separately, but similarly to both compound and recurve. Brian is asking about left-right issues in cloudy versus sunny days, morning versus evening, et cetera. The effect of light on how we perceive our aiming is is what he's driving at here, Steve.
3: Well, I always miss to the sun side, basically. If I have a setting sun to my left, I'll notice that I'm clicking my sight to the left because my arrows continue to move to the left. That's I noticed that probably 11, 12 years ago, shooting an outdoor league at Nampa Bow Chiefs when I was first getting into it. And we would, we would shoot around 6.30 or 7 o'clock. I don't remember what it was in the summer. And the setting sun would always be to my left. And I always noticed I was just skewing to that side. I don't know why. You know, it's the old Joe Dirt... Equation of why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? How does Positrack track work on a Hemi? It just does, you know, that type yeah. of thing. Chuck could yeah. probably tell us, but I just do it. I just do what I need to.
0: So with the compound bow, of course, you have the peep sight, but how you perceive the peep sight and how you center up the housing of your scope, uh, if you do that, or if you use a clarifier lens, those things can be affected by light. Some peeps have reasonably effective hoods that provide for stray light to be more or less neutralized by the time you are looking through the middle. But here's the other factor, uh, maybe the kind of thing Chuck would talk about. Your pupil diameter changes with the level of light. And that can have an effect on how you perceive the setup. And when it comes to a recurve bow, This actually becomes quite important because how we perceive the string, which doesn't have a peep in it, has a big impact on our left and right. And if our pupil is larger or smaller, we will perceive the string differently. Experience helps you to understand, that is experience dealing with different light conditions, helps you to understand cause and effect on this sort of thing. And it's worth spending some time experimenting in different conditions to see what is happening specifically. And perhaps to choose a string color that is going to be more consistent for you over time, one that's not too bright. You know, you see people out there with fluorescent yellow. Maybe uh, in in most cases, a neutral white colored string might be uh, arguably a more all-round useful color, but you might also run into issues in really bright sunlight with that kind of thing because it'll fuzz out on you. Black strings, on the other hand, can be a problem in low light. Everybody is going to perceive things a little differently. It's like me telling you what your definition of the color blue is. So it's a good idea to understand these things because they absolutely apply to both compound and recurve and have a significant impact potentially on scoring in outdoor long-term use, that is start in the morning, finish in the evening. We used to see this all the time, Steve, shooting full feeder rounds. You know, when you'd shoot 90 meters in the morning and the sun would be in one part of the sky, by the time you got to 30 meters, the sun was behind you and setting. And you would get lefts and rights, or, you know, if you're a right-handed shooter, oftentimes you'd start shooting to the left, depending on where the sun was behind you. Uh, There were lots of uh, coping mechanisms for this, but actively understanding what these things can do can certainly add points to your score. Final question comes from Rob Kite.
3: Rob Kite is from Nampa Bow Chiefs.
0: Well, he's got a very important question for you Steve. Does the proportion of one's waist size to inseam have any effect on the appropriate stabilizer length? <laughs> and and follow-up question to that, one that is directly related to the first question, what's your favorite ice cream?
3: <laughs> yeah. You know, we've always said that inseam can often be stabilizer length, right? But If you wanted to get into a full South Park, Randy Marsh calculation with pitch and yaw and things like that and include waist size, you could probably do that.
0: Steve, uh, earlier in the podcast, we were talking with Tom Dealin about the World Games and and what a great uh, showcase for compound that is going to be. And we've got some of the best archers in America uh, representing in Birmingham, Alabama this summer at the World Games. Uh, some of them are people who are very, very close to you, aren't they?
3: Yes. My wife got the call yesterday that she will be on that team. She was ranked third, but uh, Lexis Ruiz backed out. So now Linda is in. World Games is really cool for Compound, really cool for us to have it in the U.S. I hope people appreciate it. You know, you went in, where did you go for Germany, Germany. Okay. And we had, you know, you know, the
0: masters uh, that was just on TV last week, you Yeah, know the, they have a big gallery. It wasn't yes. that big, but it was pretty darn close. It, it was unbelievable to me to be followed around a field course with my recurve bow by enthusiastic onlookers in a field archery tournament. That's what happens at the world games in compound being in Birmingham, Alabama, I think we're going to have a a banging crowd there Um, and tickets are still on sale right now for the world games. So if you have any idea of what it's like to see compound in the Olympic games, this is the closest thing to compound in the Olympic games. And in in fact, uh, it is going to be an important showcase for the IOC uh, as they consider compound for the Olympic games, Steve. So it's quite important, actually, that we get a big, enthusiastic crowd out
3: there in Birmingham. Yeah, let's get some butts in seats. And I know we're in ASA country there, but it's a cool chance to see a a major international target archery event. A lot of the best, it'll be 32 in each category. So it's going to be the best of the best.
0: Besides Linda Anderson, uh, we've got uh, Paige Pierce, who's going to be representing for the U.S., Jimmy Lutz, as well as the irascible... Braden Gallanty.
3: I don't know what that word means, and I'm sure a lot of other people don't. So, to clarify that you're not insulting, Braden, can you can you maybe tell us?
0: Might have been the wrong word. <laughs> oh crap! And the ever crowd pleasing Braden Gallanty.
3: Yeah, going to be a very good team. Very good team.
0: Absolutely. And so uh, we're sending some of the best. I hope that if you're listening to this. If you have the slightest inclination, go to USA Archery's website. You'll find all the information about buying tickets, and they're not terribly expensive, to get your butt in a seat, as Steve put it, and put Compound on the map for the IOC, which will have its representatives at that event, and uh, show some love for the U.S. team and, and make it happen in Birmingham, Alabama this summer.
3: Finals day is going to be Saturday, July 9th. Saturday, July 9th. I don't know what else is happening there. Let me pull up my archery schedule. I don't Well, think there's always
0: you... something happening around Birmingham in the summertime and there's all sorts of other sports going on during the World Games. Remember what the World Games is, folks? It's the showcase for sports that are not in the Olympic Games, which is why we have field archery for recurve and barebow but also compound shooting the standard 50-meter round, the World Archery Round. Uh, It it can't be uh, emphasized just what a big deal the World Games is. It is the second biggest multi-sport event outside of the Olympic Games. It has been something that has been uh, in concert with the IOC for many years. And the IOC pays close attention to what sports do in the World Games from the standpoint of spectator appeal and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say This is a really important thing for the prospects of compound possibly, possibly being introduced in some form for the 2028 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. If there's any chance, it's going to depend a large degree on what kind of reaction IOC sees from the performance of compound in Birmingham this summer.
3: Looking at my schedule, there's really nothing else happening around that time frame. So if you're, if you're around, if you're local, I would encourage you to go. And, in fact, it's quite a it's, – it's, you know, all joking aside,
0: it's a destination event, Steve. You know, if you want to see a true multi-sport uh, event and enjoy other sports, I believe that the World Games is a great destination for families for this
3: uh, summer. It is cool. You know, they also have stuff like drone racing, billiards. Oh, yeah. I remember I remember the lady – Billiards player, the Black Widow. I do not. Yeah.
0: I mean, to be honest, I'm not a big Billiards follower.
3: Neither am I. But I remember seeing her on ESPN a few times. She was at the World Games when I was there. Oh, There's a lot of other cool events, too. Just, I mean, if you wanted to check it out, TWG2022.com, or just type in the World Games 2022. There's plenty of interesting stuff. You know what's interesting? Sports like softball. Softball was an Olympic sport, no longer is an Olympic sport. It will be in the World Games.
0: Yep. And softball would love to get back into the Olympic Games. This will be their opportunity to show off, uh, as well as a number of other sports. So yeah, World Games. Do
3: you remember the orienteering event? Yeah. I don't know exactly how that works, but I'm pretty excited to see people go out in the Alabama woods in July to orienteer and see how many of them come out of there with Lyme disease and cotton mouth bites.
0: Somehow I think this is going to get edited out.
3: <laughs> Just leave it. Just don't edit that out. You know, it's funny earlier today, I
0: was looking at a YouTube video and, um, it it was a YouTube video made by a former top shooter. And, uh, you know, he's kind of, uh, turned over his, uh, shooting career to trying to educate shooters. And I, I, I think it's good what he's trying to do, but this particular video was trying to compare three different recurve bows. And specifically the speed of the limbs of three different companies, recurve bows and Right from the start, this one hour long video is completely invalidated by the fact that he chose 40 pound limbs from one manufacturer, 42 pound limbs from another manufacturer, and 46 pound limbs from the third manufacturer. Completely, I mean, you know, in engineering, we have a thing called design of experiment. You would not use that method. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the the reason I bring it up is because there's no way to get three bows with that kind of a difference, just the mass weight of the limbs alone will skew your results because a 46 pound set of limbs from anybody is going to weigh more than a 40 pound set of limbs from somebody else. I mean, mass weight wise, throw them on a scale, you know, like a, you know,
3: a weight scale. scale. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, he spent a lot of time and effort, worked pretty hard at it, but came up with conclusions that were completely useless you know yeah and he probably was
3: using what he had available to him rather than and that's that's what i say to like chuck's thing